This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Hello, hello everybody. Good evening. My name is Nimrod and welcome to Beyond Governance. Um, it is one of those uh, rather chilly days tonight, but uh, the kind of issues that you and I will be talking about tonight uh, will definitely put a bit of heat on. Um, um, you know, before we actually move forward, let me just thank uh, my, my predecessors. Let me thank Howard, Sasha, and Vusi next to me here. And I hope, I'm, I'm hopeful that the conversation or, or the debate tonight uh, will definitely uh, get us talking, but ultimately to a point where there's some level of consensus or at least a clarity on some of the pertinent issues that we, we're talking about. I'm sure we're all aware that um, this week or last week rather has been quite a a, a watershed moment for the country in that we have had the fifth uh, ANC uh, policy conference, which would ultimately give birth to a number of, of directive or sharing uh, uh, at least a picture as to what the, what the December conference will look like. And it's quite interesting because I'm sure everybody have had an opinion uh, on the on the outcome of the policy conference, as it were, uh, tonight I'm not alone. I'm I'm now with the relatively uh, um, uh, uh, a known figure at Chaya Firm, uh, David Maimela, who is the economist with Makunguve Institute. Um, he will be giving us his uh, view around some of the pertinent issues that are coming through from the conference, as it were. Um, perhaps, maybe without any wasting of time, let me just. Um, really, uh, you know, put it to him, you know, one of the critical issues which the conference um, has been around, or rather a topical issue that informed the broader narrative of the policy discourse that was, or that is, the, 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 the radical economic uh, transformation. Um, my sense, David, is that, by the way, good evening and welcome. Good evening, good evening. How are you, my brother? I'm okay, I'm okay. Thank you, sir. One of the biggest issues for me, David, is that um, when you talk of radical social um, economic development, um, you know, the biggest issue is that I don't see the presence of, of private sector. Uh, it's not as pronounced as one would want to. Um, if we move from the premise that the economy is largely driven by the private sector, um, the, the, the relatively uh, silent voice of the private sector coming through, particularly around how the broader narrative of radical economic transformation is being put forward, um, is there a reason why we don't get to hear more of the private sector, um, or at least a sense of where the private sector ought to be in, in getting us uh, through the the, the, the the conversation. Well, Nimrod, let's let's go back to what you know um, classical development economics would would refer to as um, societal change processes that are state led. That in the first instance, it is important for, especially, you know, post colonial societies developing societies, so to speak, to have a state that is deliberate in its economic development models. And so, in order for the state to achieve that kind of thing, it has to set out a broad strategic vision about where it wants to take that kind of society to in the long term. And we are told... Uh, in many ways and repeatedly, at least since 2012, that 
the South African state has done so through the National Development Plan, uh, contested as it is, um, because one of the attributes of a coherent developmental state is that it must set that vision, but at the same time, it must have all the key role players. The private sector, you've already mentioned, it must have labor, it must have civil society, it must have everybody else. Buying into the vision, but also agreeing on set targets on what is to be achieved um, in the medium to long term. So, so um, uh, the, 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 the sense that I get is that you do not have as yet a decisive movement uh, on, um, on, on, on the key issues because if you look at the outcomes on, on employment, on inequality, on poverty, we seem to be making regress. I mean, the recent employment statistics uh, you know, indicate the fact that we're not making much progress. We have a deindustrializing de manufacturing sector, you know, textile being one of the hardest hit, of course, across the world because of China, the China effect. Um, and then, you, you know, you have other areas of manufacturing. The other element is that if you are saying now you want to move towards a radical trajectory, you need to show visibly that you are now uh, moving away from a path-dependent kind of uh, economy and development model. When I say path-dependent, I'm referring to the fact that our economy is largely minerals-based, mm-hmm. is based on um, heavy industries, based on the energy and the minerals complex. And, and those are the, are the, are the, are the sectors. However, even if that's the case, there has been a rapid rise of the services sector, be it financial and other services that that you can uh, mention. So there has been that kind of a thing. I mean, we, we've seen how, for instance, mining has been declining. We've seen how manufacturing has been declining and all of that. So the economy is, is facing that transition. And as a result of that transition... The government is trying to grapple with um, how to manage that transition in a manner that as the economy transformed into services and potentially to lighter manufacturing to other industries that must emerge, it does not leave out large sections of the population out. So that is why they talk about rhetorically Mm -hmm. about inclusive growth, that you have to have inclusive growth. So um so so now that is the achilles heel of of the government of the day that how do you create um under the because largely we are a capitalist economy we live in a capitalist society and industry and changes in the economy are driven largely by by the private sector and the the state has to insert and assert itself in the economy, in order that it can marshal all these partners, it can marshal the you know private sector, it can marshal labor, bring it together, and make sure that 
we all make certain sacrifices, certain contributions to actually move the ship. Not only just move the ship, but move it towards the correct direction. So, so, uh, so the state is grappling with that now. The ANC is grappling with that now to say, how do we effectively get there? So the debate is not more about the principles, you know, the, the, the principles to say, do, do, do you, if you can ask me now a question, do we, does anybody uh, disagree that we need radical change? <laughs> Everybody will say, yes, we do need radical change. But the issue is um, which areas, which direction, at what pace, mm-hmm. and what, what are the trade-offs that we must all enter into? I couldn't agree with you more, um, David. Perhaps, 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 perhaps maybe one of the critical issues that pe- one wants to reflect on, um, at some point you, you, may, you alluded to a coherent um, a relationship between labor, government, and, and, and capital, as it were. But we, we are pretty much aware that um, for any government to marshal resources together uh, to chart a... a way forward, there has to be some level of policy certainty um, which defines how you know different stakeholders relate but but there's there's that emerging picture which is quite frustrating for a lot of people that they, we don't seem to have that policy certainty that's one um, born out of um, that 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 blurred picture on policy certainty which warrant private sector to invest um, there's also another layer of of uh, trust deficit uh, between labor, government, as well as capital. So, for for any policy, for any um, uh, whether uh, rhetorically or practically, um, radical economic transformation can only manifest properly if there's trust. If you break that trust deficit, but how do we jump the loop? How do we get to that point where? Yes, we understand that radical economic transformation, um, it's, it's inevitable. It must happen. Um, but, but how do we agree on the trade-offs when there's such element, when such, when there's such huge element of distrust? Well, you know, these are two big concepts and two big issues in public policy, trust and mm. certainty. Mm. Um, you know, uh, it, let me start with the, the 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 question of policy certainty. You know, we must at 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 some point we must admit that there is some level of um, comfort and some level of uh, conservatism on the side of the private sector, where they actually deliberately use. You know this, you know dreaded phrase, policy certainty, to actually block change. Actually, you know, um, because when when the government says they want to move towards um, radical economic transformation, uh, which which I hope that another day we'll find time to talk about that uh, idea, you know, itself at least. Rhetorically as well as programmatically, you know. Uh, but if the government says we want to move towards radical economic transformation, is that not an indication of policy certainty? That they say 
we are saying we want to change perhaps the land tenure system or the you know re- redistribution of land and if they say um we want to have a situation where we have uh, appropriation um of land without compensation is that not certainty you see because uh, certainty should not mean that you don't agree with the policy you must say that you don't agree with the policy but you must demand certainty so there is certainty so if i say i'll take your land or i'll take the land rationalize it redistribute it uh, you know openly and evenly across the board that for me is an indication of certainty so you know as an investor individually or institutionally you know that when you go to south africa this is the land tenure system right um so 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 sometimes the phrase policy certainty is used to stall delay and and even you know frustrate you know change um so so um when the people say policy certainty sometimes it's a proxy to say we don't agree with that policy you know mm-hmm. instead of saying that because policy certainty if we define it properly because i think we must get to the definition of it it's it's a it's a situation where government of the day gives mixed signals about its policy positions and the policy direction that it's actually taking but let me just let me just come in there um, um david because when you and i agree that from a a, a definitional point of view or from a definition definition point of view certainly it's all about we almost preempt what's going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. we can almost predict what's going to happen tomorrow because they, we don't anticipate any divergence from a particular policy position okay let's say um, expropriation of land for an example if there happens to be a policy um, but the problem um, is the interpretation of that particular policy for an example I mean I've, I've picked up uh, when Zolim Kize um, this week point saying that look um, he's of the view that the current uh, look and feel if you like of radical economic transformation um, should, uh, the ANC should steer away from. So that kind of narrative create confusion because when you have senior leadership uh, contrasting each other, um, clearly that doesn't provide confidence to the market. Won't you say so? No, um, I think that we. Uh, the, you see, that is why I, you know I don't want to venture into the radical economic transformation thing because um, I think it's more rhetorical than substantive. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the the substance of mm-hmm. it, right? Um, because some politicians, by the way, beyond the ANC, are using it mm-hmm. for political mobilization purposes rather than the actual process of economic change and, and economic inclusion. But, uh, you see, the one thing that I normally say to people that you must understand the policy cycle and the policy development process of the country, of both the ANC and the country. That the ANC at the moment is actually in the process of actually refining its policy positions. And so inside the ANC, there will be different voices um, as the debate rages on, but also at the same time, there'll be external parties that are actually seeking to influence the debate. So the final arbiter of the policy positions of the ANC is actually December uh, this year to say, what is this radical economic transformation? What does it mean 
rhetorically, what does it mean substantively? And what are going to be those programs? Can you just maybe hold on uh, for a second? Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 21 minutes after 6, and I'm joined in studio by David Maimela, uh, who is the uh, researcher at Makumbuve Institute. We're having a conversation tonight around some of the, the, the very thorny and, and controversial issues that we're picking up from the policy conference, as it were. Uh, before we went to the break, the issue that, 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 that I put to him or, or that he was about to respond to is the the fact that the current policy conversations are necessarily cut in stone because um, December is going to be the final uh, milestone as to uh, what really happens beyond uh, the you know, uh, beyond 2017. But but while we're in a break, uh, he says something that, that that is of particular interest that I want him to pick on because ultimately. If we're saying we are sending different political or different messaging, when you look at um, whether you're talking this uh, Jacob Zuma camp, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa camp, or any other senior government officials, as it were, uh, from a policy certainty, I'm going to go back to policy certainty because we all transmitted different um, a message based on how we interpret. But of particular interest, you talked about legitimacy, that... Um, the more talk around radical economic transformation is not so much about the real substance of what it means. It is an attempt by these other groups to 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 win over support or to to gain legitimacy. Could you just elaborate on that? Because I think that's a, a valid point. No, I I, I do think that um, the fact that there is no clarity about what radical economic transformation means uh, points to the fact that the the ANC as a governing party for the past two decades is currently facing a legitimacy crisis. But also inside the ANC, there is the dominant, the current dominant faction that is also facing a, a legitimacy crisis. And so at a rhetorical level, it makes sense to come up or to concoct some uh, very fancy communicative political rhetoric langu- rhetorical language that can capture the imagination first of the membership of the ANC but also of the disaffected you know uh, sections of our population and that is being done by the way across the board um with some of the political formations you look at PLF you look at EFF you look at everybody so, everybody is jumping to the span yeah, yeah yeah everybody is mm. talking radical mm. right um and 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 as I was saying that, you know, perhaps the issue is not more more about the principal issues, but it's more about the substance or the programmatic issues. <laughs> I mean, um, for instance, um, let's take the the the, the example of um, of uh, let's say maybe uh, social policy. So, if you s- say social policy uh, and you want to be radical. But you still have an ANC that perceives, as it seems at the moment, social policy to, you know, narrowly refer to social protection uh, and only defines vulnerability in the sense of those people that have fallen through the cracks mm-hmm. and does not look at vulnerability, for instance, from a more embracing and conceptual sense. Because the idea of social transformation is a process 
that must lead us to particular social policy outcomes. So, for instance, a social policy, you know, touches on the elements of education, health, um, uh, transport, and many other things. But by and large, the idea of social policy as classically defined and implemented, for instance, in, in regions like Europe, is one that says, of all the people in society... There should be an agreement that there are basic necessities that we need in order to function in an economy. And those basic necessities would be the ability for people to actually make an honest living through through work. That's one. But two, um, uh, transport infrastructure. Three, basic services and all of that. But if you look at it, until the ANC deals, for instance, with the special patterns of our country, you'll still continue to have, just on the one aspect of transport, you'll still continue to have uh, most of the black people who earn on average 3500 a month spending 40% of their monthly income on transport, on them going to mm. work mm. instead of them actually securing goods and services for their households. And as a result, the cycle of poverty and inequality does not get broken because then now they also have to supplement that income with social grants and so on. Now, that becomes a problem. So if you, if you have to deal with the question of radical economic transformation only in the transport space, you have to deal with the question of how do you bring people closer to the work opportunities, but also at the same time, how do we create new job opportunities closer to where people live? Um, so it's all about reducing the cost of living, that uh, you subsidize transport, you subsidize bus and trains, you make sure that um, you reduce dependency on private motor vehicles by people you reduce congestion on the road. You make sure that you reduce the, you know, uh, negative carbon uh, uh, imprint in the in, in the environment, footprint in the environment, and so all of those things. And so, so if 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 you deal with social policy just from a radical point of view, you don't only look at those who have fallen through the cracks, mm -hmm. but you look at the question of vulnerability from early childhood development to the youth space up to the elderly age. So those are the three areas or moments which human beings can be vulnerable. But if you just simply say you are vulnerable because you are poor, then you, you define it in the sense that those who are poor are vulnerable. Then you are generalizing social policy. Um, um, I mean, we are actually, uh, you are, rather, uh, excuse me, you are actually reducing vulnerability only to the definition of poverty. Mm -hmm. But vulnerability is, is about the, the evolution of a human being from a child through the youth stage up to when people have to retire. How do you cover their, their quality of life through that lifespan? Let me uh, just cover you up. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you're making a valid point. Um, let's go back to, to, to radical economic transformation in the context of transport, for yeah. an example. Yeah. Um, can you talk of radical transformation when um, there, there's so much wastage that happened in the system? Let's look at Prasa, the amount of wastage that we have that runs to billions of rents that we have noticed. Um, let's look at this SAA. They're now looking at about two billion rents bailout. 
And I was also very disturbed because when you look at the 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 majority of South Africans who will probably not see themselves in the flight. You and I can afford a plane, but majority of people will never ever uh, 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 you know, use flight as a mode of transport. Um, and these kinds of bailouts that from time to time um, which ordinarily would have money would have spent been spent elsewhere um, but it's been spent on, on, on this black hole hmm. um, and aren't we perpetuating the same kind of, of, of poverty as it were because that money could have been spent elsewhere uh, to for an example look at the special development how do we bring businesses towards Soweto or more township for an example this obsession of holding on to entities that are draining fiscus, um, surely we can't talk of radical economic transformation until we clean those very basic, because already there's clear issues around management or mismanagement of these entities, and they are draining resources. So in as much as radical economic is there, but the emphasis or what is perhaps missing um, from the broader narrative is how do we, in a systemic way, attend to the basics which we are failing to attend to? Your point on that? Look, uh, 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 corruption is a major factor for um, any 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 country that experiences it. Um, that you would have a clear agenda and a clear policy on how to develop transport uh, infrastructure. And that you'll have entities like Prasa actually f- facing, you know, crisis of governance and therefore crisis of legitimacy. And that there'll be wasteful, uh, you know, expenditure. expenditure in the sense that, you know, money is being siphoned and, and, and that kind of a thing. All what these investigations are beginning to, to uncover, uh, seemingly. But the point is that, the point is that, uh, although you have you know, corruption as having an impact on, um, you know, some elements of transport. You you do need a transport policy and you do need transport entities such as Prasa to actually drive bulk infrastructure. Naturally, naturally. And, 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 and to the, so if, if, if you have a state that is deliberate about its development goals, you have to have a state that understands that for moving goods and services from one point to the other, you do need subsidized transport, you do need an efficient uh, agency that can actually facilitate that, and Prasa is one of those um, agencies, so is Transnet uh, through its frail infrastructure, freight infrastructure, uh, to, to be transporting goods, to be transporting on the side of uh, Prasa, to be transporting passengers uh, across, uh, you know, um, our our city notes, um, but so 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 corruption should not distract us from the strategic intent of these entities and what they actually should be doing. What we should be doing is to actually fight and actually discourage corruption and make sure that the uh, 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 the law enforcement agencies that are in, uh, tasked with the responsibility to deal with corruption, they do so decisively and that they're actually given the space and the mandate to execute their duties. So, so I would support a continued 
um, role for Prasa, a continued role for Transnet uh, Freight to make sure that we have uh, improved. I mean, Transnet has got this uh, very big, I think they've got a, a, a seven or eight pillar you know, strategic document that talks about how they actually want to improve efficiencies in transporting goods uh, from from the inner 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 city, I mean inner inner land areas, uh, at, to to the ports and and back and forth. Uh, so 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 I I do think that we, we we do need that infrastructure. In the instance that it works efficiently well, then it's good for all of us. Mm-hmm. No, I mean definitely I couldn't agree with him on that point. But I, I see, unfortunately, um, David, in, in in my mind. Uh, in as much as we, we, we can't lose sight of the broader strategic issues. Um, some of the, the, the you know, mismanagement and, and, and malpractice that is prevailing in, in, this, in, in all the sectors, unfortunately, derail development. Because the bulk of the conversation, as at least from where I've picked up, the conversations in this policy conference um, don't necessarily speak to policy issues. Uh, or, sorry, sorry, let me put it this way. Don't necessarily speak to uh, factors that undermine the policy implementation because the biggest issue is not about policy guidelines. We've got enough of those, um, but we're failing when it comes to implementation. So based on that, because, I mean, as a researcher, you'd know that before you come to a particular uh, decision, your, your your thought process has to be informed by empirical evidence you need to look at the statistics uh, you need to look at um, uh, what is really happening on the ground be it in health education and so on and so forth it has become obvious um, to, to, to anybody that policy we don't have policy vo- vacuum we don't have policy uh, challenges per se we've got you know policy implementation concerns but my assessment, I've been following these, these conversations quite closely. I did not pick up, perhaps you might have, I did not pick up a sense that there's a deliberate attempt by officials in that space to focus energies on, on, on factors that are really undermine um, policy implementation. Because um, I'll make him, let me make a classical example. Um, when you look at how the, 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 the um, uh, 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 institutions that are government-led or government-owned around funding, for example, the biggest challenge has been these in, these institutions don't necessarily or are not different from banks, are not be- different from commercial entities in terms of how they lend, um, and and they don't even have capacity. So when you have the, the likes of IDC, for example, and CIFA, you know. Uh, who are who have this mandate, but but they are failing, falling short. Surely, the policy conversation should be on on those kinds of factors that undermines because ultimately, um, the kind of poverty that we find ourselves at, and in as much as private sector is not investing as it should, for their own reasons, but but the the problem is further compounded by these internal factors. Which undermines development. Well, well look, I, w- I would think that is a combination of both. Uh, you know, because policy is a dynamic process. So, you know, you you actually improve it with uh, implementation. So, the more you implement, 
meaning that the more you succeed or the more you fail, the more you you gain insights on what works and what does not work. So, so for me, it's a combination of both um, policy perspective or policy uh, direction, as well as elements of implementation. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't want to say that the blame should be put squarely on implementation only, mm-hmm. but I do think, as I was indicating earlier, that, for instance, our conception of social policy is so narrow in, in this country. And yet the sense that you get is that the way in which social policy is actually thought of in, when you go through documents of government, when you go through documents of the ANC, is such that it is actually modeled on the classical European model of social policy. And so, so, so my, 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 my view is that you, 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 you do have elements of policy tightening that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much of it, uh, certain elements, but then you do have to have uh, implementation going on. One of the things that are quite, um, weakening state capacity actually is uh, the question of trust as you were saying earlier on so I want us to sort of put a spotlight on on that as well that you know in the instance where you have a largely black government and a largely white uh, private sector uh, we mustn't undermine that because in the instance of developmental Japan, developmental Singapore and others, uh, Taiwan and so on, you do not have that kind of problem of social cohesion that uh, people had, people, people were coming from different backgrounds, uh, racially, culturally and so on. So what you had was that you had both the political and the economic elite sharing the same cultural background and sharing the same cultural um, uh, resources. And so it became much, much easier. It's the same thing with Europe, where largely it's, you know, it's a white population and therefore people, uh, the sense of solidarity is much deeper and much quicker uh, between those. But uh, in South Africa, you don't get that sense now. I mean, you can take a simple example of how, for instance, uh, the spare issue, the sparrow issue actually uh, creates those kinds of tensions and the mistrust that people are beginning to have, for instance, on a business, uh, a hospitality business entity like Spare, mm. and and the sense that no, then it looks like Spare doesn't want to be truly truly a South African brand or a South African company. So, 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 so there's no way that you can have business committed or investing in South Africa and ignoring the question of black advancement in general. Okay. Anyway, we're going to take a break in a second. It's now uh, almost uh, 20 to 7. Uh, we'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 18 to 7. It's amazing how time flies. Uh, do give us your thoughts uh, because it's, um, this show, it's, it's not our show. It's, it's a collective show. Uh, if you've got a thought, please weigh in. Our SMS line is 34519. And, of course, on air it is 074654. Seven three three five, and on the studio I'm joined by David, uh, our regular uh, contributor to the show, and we're talking really uh, issues born out of the policy conference. Um, what I want to you know uh, uh, raise with him, and which I think it, it's such an important issue that perhaps maybe we don't pay much attention to, uh, and it's something that that came while we we're on air, off air. I beg your pardon. Um, it is 
that that trust issue um, that that is currently the biggest challenge when when you look at how the society is structured. We've got a, a labor that is predominantly black. We've got capital that is predominantly white, and and there's issues of race, there's issues of class, and there's issues around special location or allocation and so on and so forth. These issues makes um, any form of synergies or cohesion becomes more difficult. Um, that is why almost everything becomes such an issue. Um, even if it, it, it's, not race, it's, not, it's not necessarily racism or racial in its connotation, but the chances are everybody will, will rise up and say, this is racist. Even if it's not like them. Purely because you come from this history. But how do we from a strategy point of view, get to a point where, first and foremost, we, we are aware of these issues, but we begin to build those bridges so that uh, whatever you say, I look at you uh, and I judge you on the basis of, of, of your character, not so much about where you come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, because anything that comes from Soweto, for an example, be it bread or anything, or even the mechanic, um, there's all issues of quality, there's all issues about standards, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. These are the issues that unfortunately perpetuate these kind of trust. Um, but at some point, I suppose, I'm not sure whether that issue has been captured elsewhere in, 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 in the policy conversation. How do we build a culture in, in a systemic fashion of bridging those, 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 uh, bridges? There are, um, I mean, 2012 Marikana was a classic example of the breakdown of trust between, you know, stakeholders um, in the mining sector. But on a grander scale, it actually represented the, the reality of the South African situation in terms of where the state of relations is in terms of the key, key stakeholders in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you've had government, you've had, you know, the mining house, Lonmin, and you had labor, um, you know, reaching that state or that state of a debilitating conflict that actually led to those uh, tragic death, death of, of, of workers. One of the things is basically the fact that the mining houses have not moved significantly, for instance, on a very simple question of the social and labor plans they've done very little I mean it was discovered that for instance Lonmin had failed dismally to meet its targets on, on housing for instance you know? uh, and so how do you expect labor organized and otherwise to actually trust mm-hmm. that you know a business is going to act in a, in a, in a particular way but uh, you know the I'm, I'm raising this element because it, it, it's quite important that the the bonds of social solidarity across race and class uh, are not going to be automatic. They have to be based on um, a certain level of trust. And I do think that in the South African context, that trust is actually interrupted by the past from which we've just emerged two, de- two decades ago, where uh, there is massive levels of trust on the basis of the, you know, three three centuries of the political conflict, uh, on the basis of uh, language, on the basis of culture, on the basis of heritage, on the basis of where you come from. Um, you know, the 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 
the boss that I work for normally makes the the example that you know the 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 black people will socialize in the football stadium and the white people will socialize in the cricket and rugby stadium and 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 then he says but but where are these you know even the at an informal level where are these conversations actually taking place mm-hmm. the the intangible things i'm not talking about the gathering of the top 100 ceos and then you know and then you have that kind of kind of a thing which is um based on a crisis driven kind of an intervention i'm talking about an ongoing conversation that actually builds trust uh, amongst uh, you know the the key role players you you really do need that um i mean you can extend it even to mm-hmm. the the contest around for instance um if we venture to the area of sports around whether do you do you trust players that do you trust rugby players that come from townships Mm-hmm. Uh, even though we've we've seen that, you know, black players that actually play uh, in the Springboks actually do excel actually from time to time, uh, and and of course, I mean, most of them do come from these uh, multi schools and so on. But the point is that it is exactly that that the question of class and race then you know meets together to complicate uh, how we actually handle. Uh, these very complex issues in our country. So we, we, we have to deal with the issue of trust deficit on both sides so that we can reduce policy certainty, we can reduce um, uh, uncertainty around, uh, or rather actually the low levels of you know, fixed investment from the private sector and many other elements that, that attach to that. Talking of trust, one of the biggest issues that, that um, I've picked up from the policy deliberations um, is the whole issue of cartels. Uh, and, and monopolies, um, and, and I've also picked up from one or two uh, senior government officials who say, "Look, um, um, you know these cartels are literally um, uh, obliterating any possible emergence of small players, and and there, there hasn't really been a, a breakthrough in terms of breaking the monopolies or breaking cartels because by virtue of colluding, you are literally undermining." Um, inclusive growth. You are literally undermining um, um, growth in general. So we can't talk of radical economic transformation when we still have cartels, people colluding, uh, I be it on bread, uh, uh, um, you know, or steel or cement and so on and so forth. Because we got to a point where we've got these institutions that have been established, like the the, the, the competition commission, for example, has been established to look at how, you know, corporate or how business operate, um, um, you know, you know, trying to address or, or, or discourage um, um, anti-competitive behavior. So, again, this is also, it boils down to trust. Yeah. Sure. Um, because ultimately, when, when there's that trust that, look, for us to grow as a country, we, we obviously have to open doors for yeah. everybody. Sure. But when we, when we behave in a, in a, in a when we collude, um, in whatever form or shape, we are undermining the efforts which further uh, uh, take us where we are. I mean, we are the most unequal society in the world. Mm-hmm. And and the, the kind of uh, inequality and inequities that we see today is as a result from these uh, issues as cartel, for example, and maladministration on government side. So, so, so we need to work quite hard uh, at the programmatic level, mm-hmm. but also the political level, to instill confidence and, and some level of consciousness mm-hmm. around both 
private sector and public sector on the ramification of some of these actions. Mm. Because if they go unchallenged, um, ultimately who suffers? Mm. You know, we get to a point where we have 17 million people uh, uh, living on grants as opposed to reducing. The numbers are going over and over again uh, purely because some of these activities. But the question for me is, from a policy point of view, because we have seen these structures, but they're not effective. Because if you've had um, the competition com- uh, uh, competition tribunals really being a, a force to reckon with, by now we ought to have seen diminishing uh, statistics when it comes to collusion and so on and so forth, fronting. Um, but, but we're not really winning, which also begs the question of why trust is, is as low as it is. Um, I do think that the the approach that can can work in the country uh, in terms of stakeholder management and rolling out of programs jointly between the state, labor, and the private sector is the one that says, um, how do you take a sectoral approach, be it mining, manufacturing, energy, all these important sectors of our economy, those that have got the potential to create jobs. Um, How do you have a set of commitments on both, on all sides, Mm -hmm. that the state will pitch in in terms of providing policy certainty, will pitch in in terms of bulk infrastructure, We'll make sure that, I mean, uh, you know, it provides preferential rates on a number of uh, issues, uh, such as um, uh, energy, for instance, power. Um, But at the same time, it will also have a stick. So, you know, it takes the approach of a carrot and a stick that if the private sector behaves in this way, for instance, let's say it increases fixed investment and the state is willing to provide uh, you know key infrastructure so that you know the you know the the cost of doing business is actually lowered and that actually the returns are much better but also at the same time business then makes the commitment that they are going to continue to increase um, uh, wages improve working conditions and make sure that they absorb as many people as possible into the job market, especially young people, right, and women, right? So they make that commitment. But also at the same time, it's possible that labor has to make particular uh, compromises. But that cannot happen if all of us are looking at short-term gains, mm-hmm. that you are looking at the three-month cycle, that you know, all these you know, major role players are looking at the three-month cycle, and government also you know, is looking at quick returns, quick wins, the low-lying uh, fruit, of course. But you do not have a situation where companies are able to say, or labor and government jointly, that in this sector of energy, this is the kind of change that we are looking for, and these are the kinds of visions and milestones we're looking for, and therefore, this is the input, this is the sacrifices we're willing to make for the long haul not only for quick returns for this uh, particular uh, season or this particular cycle of, uh, 
of reporting results. But it's, it's quite a very so, important point, uh, uh, David. And let me, if, if I could just interject there, because ultimately business, um, you know, is all about return on investment. Yeah. Shoulders are, you know, very keen on say look up exactly you know, <laughs> and there's no two about it i've invested my money and what the returns and how soon can i get my money back so from that point of view investing in in a country that is characterized by uh, a class inequality um and where business is expected to, to behave in a socially responsible manner uh, it becomes very difficult. I mean, for an example, you made you made reference to Lawn Mill uh, failure to execute its social uh, plan uh, because that, that that kind of failure says, "Look, that's not our job. This is government's responsibility. Our job is to you know to to hire and, 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 and you know and make money." So you now you now putting burden on business on these other peripheral uh, activities which are not core. So that's why it's, go- it's going to be very difficult. So, but how do we get to the point where even the shareholders, um, and we're not just paying lip service about being socially responsible. Um, shareholders are aware that um, for this country to, to move forward, uh, we can't, in equally labor, can't demand excessive, because there has to be trade-offs. Yeah. Because without government um, undertaking um, some 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 trade-offs, uh, labor and capital, and and all the three are meeting at some point, you know, because this, we can't play a zero-sum game <laughs> yeah. because it's, yeah. it's fruitless. Yeah, no, no, I, I get your point. I mean, business must make money and they must make profit and they want to make it now. No, that's the point. And at the same time, government must serve the people and they must make sure that the quality of life of the people improves. The workers are interested in getting more jobs and making sure that the quality of their work is actually improving and the wage improves. So those are conflicting interests. But but the point is that if nobody takes heed to the advice that says, if you do not work together, identify the trade-offs, commit to uh, the long term, make those particular sacrifices, then it means that nobody wins in the long term, actually. The, the government will become more more illegitimate, it will become less developmental, it will become uh, less trusted by the people um, this, the private sector will actually make short term gains now, make lots of money now but it means that you know, in the next 20 years or so, it will uh, be investing in a country that is highly unstable because of these very same issues so, so you have to make a choice that are you, are you are you going to take the long-term view and say, look, um, we're in this thing for the long term. How do we make sure that we come up with what is referred to as a win-win situation for everybody? And and I think there are those alternatives of a win-win situation and that people must just fix their eyes on alternatives that actually work. Yes, indeed. Uh, David, I must say it has been quite a pleasure um, uh, having this kind of uh, brutal conversation and I'm hopeful that... Um, uh, policymakers and legislators have been listening to the show um, as they should, I would imagine. Uh, but but heeding to some of the insight that that that, that is emerging um, from the kind of conversation that you're having, uh, it has been absolute pleasure, my brother. And thank you for your time. Sure, thank thanks so much. Until we meet again, um, adios.